Good morning. Welcome to Parkway. My name is Jared Lawson, if you're new with us, or if you're still here, that's my name, if you forgot it. Uh, you can open your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 26, like Dave just read, and while you turn there, I'll tell you another story emphasizing uh, my athletic abilities. So uh, I have shared how I love soccer. I love watching soccer. I'm not good at soccer, but I watch people who are good at soccer. And every now and then I like to you know, be a normal poser and pretend I'm good at soccer. So several years ago when my wife, who is good at soccer, because she's European, they're just born that way, uh, we were in Charlotte, North Carolina going to seminary and we and a couple other friends, two other friends thought, you know, let's go, we're done studying, let's go play soccer. So one of our friends that lived there, uh, we went to his old high school where he had a key to get onto their football field. And we were just gonna play two on two. And we get there and there's no soccer goals, but there was a lacrosse practice had just finished up. And so there are these big lacrosse goals. I don't know much about lacrosse, but the goals are like super, super heavy. Uh, and there's like a big you know, metal, whatever, frame that comes down into a flat metal part. And so me and Alex, the other man, we're like, we're men, let's move this and set up this field. And so I uh, go on one side, he goes on the other. We pick it up uh, and start walking to, to adjust it. It's pretty heavy. And so as my right arm is quickly losing its you know, amount of carrying abilities, I think, you know what, here's what I'll do. I'll spin, I'll grab it with both hands and I'll walk backwards. And here's where my athleticism kicks in. As I spin, if you're squeamish, you probably plug your ears. Uh, I, I, you know, put my foot right here to spin around and the goal keeps moving and the heavy goal hits uh, my big toe. Now, I'm wearing football cleats, which are real, real thick and it hurts really bad. So I drop it and I do one of those. Okay, how bad is it? I haven't looked yet. And I look down and I'm wearing a cleat that's real thick. And all I see is this thing, you know, cleats not like this. It's poking up like this. And I think, what could that be? That's, uh, that's my toenail, uh, and it hurts real bad. So I hobble to the sideline, uh, and I say, hey, I know we've enjoyed this zero minutes of playing soccer, so I guess you guys play two-on-one as I uh, whine over here. And I slowly take my shoe off. I have never felt, I felt pain worse than this, but I've never felt pain like this in my toes. Take my uh, shoe off, and it had essentially almost bent all the way back. Uh, from this, I mean, just like apparently perfectly, the goal hit my toenail. Now, up until that point, I had not spent a lot of time thinking about the value of a toenail. You know, I thought, you know, I've got beautiful feet. It's important that you know that. And, and when I wear Burks, they shine, you know, all their glory. People look, man, he's got some good feet. But other than that, I had never thought about it. Now, let me tell you, in that moment, my entire, every, every thought passing through my brain was on that toenail. When it was wounded, the whole body was super hyper-focused on it. And I, I mean, literally, as I'm telling the story, I'm feeling like blood is rushing to my tongue. My body remembers this. And you probably see where I'm going with this with the text that we have today. Paul is going to be correcting another thing the Corinthians have gotten wrong. We've been walking uh, through this, this section of uh, spiritual gifts and how they're meant to be used and how they're meant to, to relate to one another. And shocker, the Corinthians aren't doing that great a job. There's this group of prideful, arrogant people who are exalting themselves and exalting their gifts and in the process are demeaning others. And so Paul today is going to bring this correction. Last week he was correcting the gifts in particular, proper use of the gifts. This week he's going to correct the people 
in whom the gifts reside. And so he's going to give a very famous, arguably one of the most famous uh, analogies in the Christian church that we use all the time. Tonight, we're going to have a member meeting. Where do we get the word member from this text? He's going to talk about Christ's one body and its many members. Christ's one body and its many members, how they are to relate to each other. And we're going to see three things uh, in particular. The necessity of the members, the necessity of the members, the dependency of the members, and then lastly, the joy of the members. The necessity of the members, the dependency of the members, and then lastly, the joy of the members. So let me pray, and then we will jump into verse 12. Father, it is a uh, a humbling thing to see a text uh, that is meant to shape the life of a church, Uh, but we pray that this text would uh, absolutely mark how the the members of the Parkway Church relate to one another. I pray that your scriptures uh, does what it's meant to do, which is uh, weigh heavily upon us, that your spirit would cut to the heart and that we would have our eyes turned to the glory of the gospel, that we would be unified uh, and be marked primarily, as Jesus said to his disciples, by our love for one another. We pray that you would do that in your, name, in your son's name. Amen. Okay, let's look at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So right there in the first verse, we have essentially the entire teaching of this whole passage. He gives it to us right at the beginning, and he's going to unpack it the rest of the way. One body, many members of that one body. In the same way that your human body, there's one Jared, but there's hands, a neck, a nose, you know, members, parts of my body, but I'm not, there's not like 17, what, how many members you have, Jared. There's one Jared, so it is with Christ or Christ's body, the church. One body, but many members. And then 13, how? He, he, takes, he takes a moment to look at the supernatural reality of how we were even brought into this body in the first place. I doesn't want to blow past uh, how have we been made a part of Christ's body. Verse 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Have you ever stopped to think about how, how does Christ's death on a cross get applied to you? How did something 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, what does that have to do with you today, 2,000 years later in McKinney, Texas? And the answer is the Spirit applying the work that Christ did on the cross to our own hearts. As, as the son, what, what is Jesus talking about all through the gospel of John as he's preparing his disciples that he's gonna die, be raised again and go and ascend? He says, don't worry because I will ask my father, he will send the helper, he'll send the comforter, he'll send the spirit. And the spirit does descend. We see that at the beginning of the book of Acts and the spirit is the one convicting the heart of sin. The spirit is the one that turns our hearts towards repentance. The Spirit is the one taking away a heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh, rewiring our affections where we no longer long for the sinful things of the world. We now long for righteousness. The Spirit is the one that indwells and seals your salvation. The Spirit is the one who applies this work. And so Paul is uh, pausing here to say, remember the supernatural reality of who you are. In one spirit, we were all baptized. What does baptism celebrate? The glorious reality that you were once dead, but because of Jesus Christ, you've been raised to life. 
and you're raised not to some sort of individual Lone Ranger Christianity, you're brought into a body. You're brought into a family. God is your father. You look at uh, one another as your eternal brothers and sisters. You've been brought into a family through the Spirit's work in your heart, and we're all made to drink of one Spirit. Most commentators just think that's a reference to just being filled with the Spirit. There's not a limit to the Spirit we get. As some, some get some, and some get more. Again, before Paul really gets into it, he wants to remind them. Each of you, regardless of your social status, regardless of, of your ethnicity, notice that, Jew or Greek, slave or free, have been supernaturally saved by God and brought in to God's family. And one of the things we'll see all throughout this passage today is as Paul gives teaching, he's always going to press pause and remind them this isn't just man's wisdom, this isn't just man's ideas, God is the one designing all of this. And so even in the first fundamental teaching, one body, many members, how is that possible? God is the one who redeemed you and brought you in. You didn't get in here because of your own skill. You were dead, you were a rebel, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the, right? Kind of forgot the line. What is it? Wandering from the throne of God? You guys are just all mumbled. We'll look it up later. You know what I mean? <laughs> Rebel, sheep, lost, far away. The good shepherd comes back and gets us, right? That's the first thing Paul's putting in their mind. Don't forget the supernatural reality. God's the one's designing this. This isn't just man's best uh, attempts for productivity and things like that. So, there it is, there's the teaching. In the same way that your body is one body, many members, so it is with Christ's body. And then now he's gonna give two key corrections because the Corinthians are just absolutely blowing this, misunderstanding this. And the first one is going to be the necessity of the members of the body. Look at verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. So there again, he's repeating uh, the main teaching. But I don't wanna blow by this, uh, the body this body consists not of one member, but many. Now, we live in a Bible Belt culture where I would say the norm of what it means to go to a church does not mean I'm a member of this church that builds up this church and exalts Christ with my brothers and sisters. I would say the norm is primarily I'm an audience member. I come to see a show I come to hear a relatable pastor. He's funny. He gets me. I come to hear great music. What are we doing? We're checking off the preferences. If I go to this church because their music's great, we went there for a while, but the music got a little stale, right? That's, you're an audience member. That's the primary way. The church I grew up in, uh, great church, mega church, uh, great pastor, at least while I was there, uh, middle school and high school and so on, the, the, the majority of the people there on Sundays weren't members. It was something like 60% weren't members. Why? Because they're not there to, to be a part, to belong, to be known or anything like that. They're there to see and receive. It's, it's kind of like, you know, uh, you could watch a movie in your living room or you could go to the theater. Like we could podcast a pastor, hear a good sermon, or we could go and see it in person. That's kind of how church was viewed, and that, that is so fundamentally backwards to what Paul is going to describe here, understanding that you are not a spectator, but a member of this body is essential for the thriving of the church, for the thriving of that body. As the great Old Testament scholar John F. Kennedy said, ask not what your church can do for you, ask what you can do 
for your church. So that's the starting point. I don't want to blow past that. That's the starting point. Every member of the Parkway Church was redeemed by God, brought intentionally by God here, wired with gifts for the building up of this church and for the glorification and exaltation of the name of Jesus Christ. If that's not in your mind when you walk through those doors, you're thinking backwards. You're thinking like the Corinthians. If it's just, I wonder what the sermon's gonna be about today. I wonder what theological equipping is gonna be about today. You've shifted into thinking like an audience member. You're forgetting that you're a member of this body. So that's the, that's, that's the starting point. I didn't want to blow by that, but then Paul, after giving this teaching, goes to verse 15. He's going to give his first kind of analogy. If the foot, look at verse 15. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. So here's what uh, almost all the commentators think is happening here. Again, we, in the Corinthian situation, there's the arrogant, right? We, we don't just see them in this passage. We saw them abusing communion. We saw that, you know, they're constantly, almost every section, there's this group that are exalting themselves. And with spiritual gifts, they've exalted themselves and they're demeaning others. And apparently, the ones they're demeaning are beginning to believe their lies and are starting to say, I guess I don't matter. I guess I don't have gifts that contribute. I guess I'm not, you know, the well-spoken, you know, guy at the center of everyone's attention like those people. I guess I, I am a worthless member of the body. And so Paul here is stopping to lift their eyes. He says, that's not true. That's not true. He reminds them of reality. Even if you think you don't matter, if the eye says I'm not an ear, that would not make it any less a part of the body, even if you think you don't matter, even if you believe the lies of the arrogant, that doesn't change reality. That doesn't change reality. You are still a member of this church. No matter what the ear thinks, it doesn't change the fact that it is an ear and it is hearing and it is contributing to the body. Uh, one of the ironies of something like anxiety is anxiety does absolutely nothing to change your circumstances. It only makes you unnecessarily stressed. Why does Jesus say, don't be anxious about tomorrow? Because you're here. There's nothing you can do there. Why waste all this emotional energy being anxious about tomorrow? It's one of the ironies. It does nothing to actually change your circumstances. And similarly, Paul's here saying, even if you don't feel like you're a part of the body, that doesn't change the reality that you are a part of the body. That's not God's view. That's the lies from the arrogant. In fact, he's going to take it one step further. Look at verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Not only are you a part of the body, whether you think it or not, you're a necessary part of the body. You're a vital part of the body. You're an essential part of the body. If what you thought were true, that you're really not needed, the body would be severely, severely handicapped. If the ear thinks, I'm not a part of the body, and it goes away, there's no hearing anymore. The body is incredibly, right? The toenail, the toenail is bent, the whole body knows it and can't focus on anything else until it goes away. Uh, I had, in my short stint in Abilene, my five months in Abilene, there was a guy who lived on my hall uh, who, he was off with his buddies and uh, one weekend and they were at a ranch 
because you know the main thing you do when you're in Abilene is leave Abilene. Uh, and so they were at a ranch and he was sitting on the back of his truck and somebody started and drove the truck. He fell off and hit his head on the ground or on a rock and got a concussion. And when uh, he was kind of recovered, came out of the hospital, he had permanently lost his taste. He could never taste again. The doctor said he'd never be able to taste again. So I guess he caught COVID when he hit the rock. This is 2011. <laughs> Uh, but so lost his taste and of course he was devastated. There will never be a day that goes by in his life where he's not reminded of that. Every single meal, every time he puts anything in his mouth, he'll be reminded, I have no taste. In fact, he would come to our, this is really sad. He would come into my dorm room and I would make him coffee and he would drink coffee because it was the only thing, the, the heat of the coffee made his tongue tingle and that was like as close as he could get to taste. This is a horrible thing. And we mourned with him and, and you know, I tried to encourage him like, well, now you can eat healthy food that tastes bad because you can't taste it anyway. <laughs> he was not encouraged by that. Uh, right? That's Paul, Paul's point is if what you thought were true, you who think you're worthless, the body would be severely, severely wounded. It would be blind. It would be deaf if what you think are true. It doesn't change the reality that you are not just a member, a vital member of the body. There are no... JV and varsity levels to membership in the body. There's not JV gifts and varsity gifts. There's not a class system or a caste system of gifts. All are essential. Some may be more public, like what I'm doing right now. You're being forced to watch me teach, right? Teaching is a gift, right? This is very public. That doesn't mean it's any more essential than encouragement or kindness or hospitality. Uh, one of my, one of the subjects I love studying is World War II. I guess it's not a subject time period. Whatever, I like World War II. I like studying it. And uh, one of the things I noticed is years ago, when the first kind of, you know, in the, in the 2000s, and the 90s, a long time ago, back when we all were kids, uh, the movies that came out were all about the soldiers, right? Saving Private Ryan, uh, Band of Brothers, the Pacific, all about the soldiers, all about the battles, right? Of course, where is, where is the war won on the battlefield? And then if you've noticed recently, over the past few years, the, the movies primarily that are coming out are kind of one layer removed, so you have like the imitation game with uh, butternut crinkle fries or whatever his name is uh, about the, uh, <laughs> ridiculous, uh, about you know, a mathematician who, who was able to decode a lot of the German messages and how absolutely significant that was for the war effort. Or you had a, a movie about the Battle of Dunkirk where the allies or the, the British and French army before we had joined the war are retreating but they're stuck on uh, the beaches of Dunkirk and civilians from England come over in their personal boats to rescue many of the army, all these kind of one layer removed, or the darkest hour with Winston Churchill and how he uh, just ignited the spirits, we'll fight them on the beaches, we'll fight them in France, we will never surrender, how he absolutely took a, a fearful nation and flipped that on its head to a, to a powerful nation. One layer removed, and if we were to keep studying, you would see even on the home front, what's happening in America? Are we just like, is this done yet? Are we gonna, have we gotten to Hitler? No, there's you know, gas rations and rubber drives and glass drives and kids aren't eating butter on their toast because of the war in Europe. There's sacrifice all over the nation. And so if you keep moving back layers and layers, if one of those is removed, I don't know if we lose the war, but we are significantly at a loss. If, we, if they don't make it out of the Battle of Dunkirk, there is no England for us to go to. There's no English army for us to partner with 
for 41 and 42 before D-Day. If there is no Winston Churchill, I have no idea what happens. If you remove one of those, if there's no butternut crinkle fries and we can't predict you know, the German advancements and things like that, if, if there's no fundraising from the states, you know, so to say it's all about the soldiers and not focus on anything else would be crazy. And it's the same with the body. You look down on one member and then you stub your toe and you'll see how vital that member is. That's Paul's point here. So just to get practical, if you think right now, if you're downcast, if you're, if you're in this kind of group of the Corinthians, I'm not, you know, I'm not a great orator or I don't have this great extroverted personality that can just surround people uh, and bring them in and things like that. And you think your gifts aren't important. One, here from the scriptures, that's not reality. You're not just a member, you're a vital member. When Claudia and I went to uh, Charlotte to go to seminary, we went to this big, well-known seminary, Gordon-Conwell, that was known for its high academics and all these different things. And so we were thinking, we're going to go, we're going to be formed by one of the best seminaries in the world, and it's going to be great. And it was great. I love uh, Gordon-Conwell, but one of the people that formed us more than anybody else in our three and a half years in Charlotte wasn't a professor, it was a fellow classmate. Uh, Dawn, a single mother whose kids had just gone off to college, and so she uh, decided, I'm going to go back to school and to get her degree in counseling. And we took a counseling class, and we met Dawn, and Dawn just befriended us. I mentioned her in, in a past sermon. She befriended us, and she was kind to us. We were newly married, and so she was uh, very encouraging to us. She was very hospitable. Notice these are all gifts. Uh, very hospitable. Invited us into her house on Thanksgiving and uh, Christmas and things like that. Even, even things she probably didn't realize as I'm wrestling. You know, she's taking counseling classes. I'm taking, you know, theology one and two, and I'm wrestling with how does this fit with this and what about these inconsistencies and I'm thinking through all these different things and just through, she would have Claudia and I over for dinner, I would just kind of vent, externally process and she would just ask some encouraging questions and somehow the spirit would use it to make just things fit in my brain and so Dawn probably just thought, I'm just being nice to these kids who've got nobody that you know, knows them or likes them here and I guess I'll be that person, <laughs> right? She has no idea that we're different people if Dawn, if this classmate doesn't exist. We come out of Gordon Conwell different people, but God used these gifts that are unseen, kindness, encouragement, hospitality, to absolutely form our hearts and change us. So if you think you have these gifts that aren't as public, like encouragement, admin, hospitality, and people are like, admin, that's pretty generic, what does that mean? If you think you have low, unimportant gifts, I want you to do a uh, couple things. One, imagine those go away. Imagine everyone with the gift of hospitality at Parkway loses it, and everyone with the gift of encouragement loses it. There's no hospitality gifts, no encouragement gifts. What a cold, dead place this would be. What a cold, dead place the Parkway Church would be known as if we have no encouragers, if we have no one who's hospitable. Imagine all the generous people stop being generous. What a shut down place this would be, <laughs> right? We can barely keep the lights on as it is, but without the generosity, imagine, okay? Carl has French horn lessons on the side because some of you have stopped. I'm just kidding. Giving's been great. Imagine if they go away. And then secondly, I want to just encourage you, you will never see the full impact of your gift. Dawn, again, I, I love Dawn. I know Dawn. She's, she's visited and 
seen our kids, but Dawn still, even though I've told her how much we love her, she doesn't know the full impact of her you know, influence on us. You never know. You just maybe bring someone over for dinner and encouraging them, and they leave with a new life in their heart because of what the Spirit has done. You just think, I'm being nice. You know, I'm inviting them over. You don't even realize sometimes you're using your gifts. How many of your testimonies started with, you didn't know God, and then a neighbor was kind to you? Or a coworker invited you to church? using these gifts that are unseen. Maybe they don't even realize that the spirit is used to to change your heart. So all that to say, don't let your false feelings distract you from reality. Turn your eyes away from the divine reality of what God is doing through your gifts, okay? Uh, One last analogy of, I'm I'm always hesitant to use a sports analogy because Carl doesn't understand them. Uh, Sorry, Carl. Carl, Carl's great. He loves sports. Uh, no, it's not true. Uh, so in, in, football, in football, there's the skill positions, the quarterback, the running back, the wide receivers, the guys who are, you know, fast and ripped and hot. I mean, Tom Brady. Uh, and then there are the linemen, okay? The people that are uh, typically not as fast and typically not as trim. Uh, in fact, uh, my wife, who's European, when she first uh, watched American football, you know, in Europe, think about soccer. Everyone's kind of the same size and all that. So when we first watched American football, she thought, this is so nice. The Americans are so nice, they let the fat people play too. <laughs> and uh, I explained to her that that was fat shaming and unacceptable. Uh, and so she, it took a while for her to adjust culturally. But, so, linemen... No one's excited when a team gets a new lineman. Linemen are not going to be on the cover of GQ. Linemen are not scoring the touchdowns. They get almost no glory. Now, if you know anything about football, or if you don't, I'm about to tell you, if you have a bad offensive line, your team is terrible. And there's nothing you care about more than having really good O-linemen. They get almost no glory, but again, remove them, and the whole team suffers horribly, 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 horribly. So there are no unimportant gifts. All of them are necessary. All of them are vital. And then look at verse 18. I love this. Paul, again, is going to zoom out to God's design. Verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there, is many, there are many parts, yet one body. So again, Paul here is displaying the very clear wisdom of man, foolishness of man, really, and the design of God. Man's wisdom, right there in verse 19, if what the prideful thought were true, only these exalted gifts, right, only, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever they're saying is the most important gifts, there's no body. Where would the body be, Paul says? If what you think, oh, arrogant Corinthians, is true, guess what? The body completely goes away, but here's God's design. Those first four words, but as it is. Not this false version of the Corinthians, but as reality is, as God's design is. There are many members, all of them essential. Paul, in a kind of a gentle way, is rebuking the lowly and saying, you, like the arrogant and the prideful, have forgotten who your God is. When you believe the lie that you're unimportant, guess what? Pride is creeping into your heart as well because you're beginning to see as man sees. You're not seeing as God sees. And so he's reminding him, here's how God sees. Who is your God? 
God is never one who said, I'm going to build the dream team, ever. <laughs> In fact, one of the early verses of this whole letter that we read almost a year ago is this, 1 Corinthians 1, 27, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God chose the weak things in the world to shame the strong. One of the things that comes out so clearly in uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's writings, particularly the Lord of the Rings, is that idea, how, how this kind of divine providence, there's not really a God character that shows up in the Lord of the Rings stories, but there is, is one in that world that he created, but how divine wisdom, divine providence is constantly shaming those who are powerful in their own sight. And one of the things that clearly goes throughout is hobbits, these little weird hairy dudes that aren't strong, that aren't tall. All throughout the stories, these, the, the big bad guys are always like, why are they here? Why, why are they the ones holding the ring? Why are they the ones that Gandalf keeps bringing along with them? That makes no sense. Why not just a whole army of awesome soldiers to go throw this ring into the fire? I don't get these guys. And then what do you see? All throughout, it's that Wisdom of providence that shames the strong. It leads to their ultimate destruction. Tolkien, being a committed Christian, is trying to bring this out in those writings. Trying to weave the wisdom of God, not as an allegory, but to show the wisdom of God in this way. Think about Jesus. When Jesus calls his disciples, (laughs) is he building the dream team? Uneducated fisherman, a tax collector, who every Jew would have hated, uh, a zealot, who especially would have hated that tax collector. On top of that, Prostitutes are following him. Sinners, just that's your label. You're a sinner. We don't know what the sin is, but prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, following him all the time. He's going after the outcasts. Why? To show one, there's no you know, class that, he, that has an exclusive claim on him, but also to show he and he alone has a supernatural reconciling power that there's no two groups that he can't bring together. Everything is meant to constantly point back into God's infinite wisdom that shames our wisdom. Paul even says that in himself. In 2 Corinthians, he's talking about his ministry and how they have this gospel ministry, but he says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure, this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay, in brittle jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So when you are thinking about levels of importance or levels of fame, you're thinking like, man, you're not thinking like God. You've forgotten who your God is. You've forgotten God's design. Whether you are pridefully exalting yourself or shamefully thinking you're worthless, both miss God's design. So Paul, again, is reminding them, reminding them of God's character. Look at the intimacy. Look again at verse 18. Look at the intimacy behind these words. As it is, God arranged, not abstractly just declared, not random chance, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, Paul zooming in, each one of them, not generic, okay, Parkway, done with them, okay, Christ Redeemer, I'll arrange them, each member, each one of them, as he chose. If you're feeling lowly, Remember, you have an intensely personal God that chose you before the foundations of the earth, knit you together in your mother's womb, saved you when you were a rebel, brought you into his family, and has arranged you, each one of you, in his church as a member of the body. That is who your God is. And remember, again, 
God's desire as you use your gifts isn't self-exaltation. It's not like the prideful Corinthians. What does Jesus say over and over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount? When you fast, when you pray, when you give, don't do it in public. Don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. What does he say? Your father who sees will reward you in secret. He is where we get our praise and our approval. If you're using your gift and you think not not enough people are seeing you use that gift, one, repent of your pride, two, realize the very nature of how you're meant to use that gift is for his approval alone. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, thou mine inheritance now and always. Look, I got that one. Okay, so be thou my vision, I know. Come thou fount, I need to work on. Don't forget who your God is. That's one of the first things. Paul pointing back to his character, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. So that's the first correction, the necessity of each member. He's lifting up the lowly. He's talking to the downcast. All the members are needed. All the members are necessary by God's design. And now he's gonna shift, not talking to the downcast anymore, talking to the prideful. Verse 21, he's gonna show them not just the, necessi- or the necessity of the members, the dependency of the members. Look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So first of all, you see that shift? He's not saying if the ear doesn't think it's part of the body, he still is. He's saying, hey, eyes who think you have no need of hands, you cannot say, I have no need. You see that shift in how he's saying? So he's rebuking the prideful here. You cannot look down on others. You cannot say they're not needed. Verse 22, on the contrary. There it is. So see it again. Dumb Corinthian thinking, on the contrary. Reality, God's design, on the contrary. The parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. The parts that seem to you as weak and unnecessary are absolutely essential. In fact, you depend on them. You depend on those parts of the body. What irony. The parts that you think you don't need, you actually depend on. Uh, If you ever go to a gym or are around people that go to gyms, one of the things you'll see is people tend to go to a gym, look at themselves in the mirror and think, hmm, which of this will get the most praise? And they conclude every time, abs, chest, biceps. So they go to a gym and they're just doing curls. I mean, it's just like years and years of straight curls, straight push-ups, straight abs. And then after a while, they look like a chicken. Very top heavy, very skinny down here, right? Very wonky, which is why you should do what I do, which is not work out at all. <laughs> then it's all even, okay? So again, even people who work out their whole body, they won't run, and so they're super jacked, but then they go for a jog, and they can't go far, right? Because it's all very uneven. They're focused on one gift, the neglect of the others, not realizing that all of the muscles are meant to work together. Again, that's what Paul's saying here. You are dependent on these. They're indispensable. The ones you think are weak and unneeded, you actually depend on. Here's a quote from uh, Brian Rosner, a a commentator on this verse. A well-functioning body requires a multiplicity of members with a multiplicity of functions. And a church full of just one kind of gift or even just a few different ones would quickly shrivel up and die from the loss of its other senses and its lack of nourishment. Would quickly shrivel up and die from the loss of its other senses and its lack of nourishment. If you've been paying attention 
to kind of our circles, the young, restless, and reformed over the past five years, famous pastor after famous pastor after famous pastor after famous pastor has fallen, and what happens to their churches? The churches fall with them. Why? Because they think like the Corinthians. The entire church is built on their gifts and their gifts alone. They go. They don't have members who view themselves as building up the body. They see their show has left and the church goes away. That's what happens when fame comes in, when self-exaltation comes in and you begin to build a church around one man's personality. He goes, the church goes. That's how the Corinthians are thinking. A church built on one gift or a couple gifts will shrivel up and die. Verse 13, and on those parts, so again, he's talking about the the, the weaker parts are actually indispensable, verse 13, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we we actually bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. What's Paul saying? The Corinthians have it exactly backwards. These parts you think are unimportant are actually the ones we treat with greater honor. And to display this, he gives an analogy that kind of shocked me when I studied this. I guess I hadn't studied this passage before. Our unpresentable parts we treat with greater modesty. Literally what he's talking about is your private parts, genitals, right? These things that you would think gross, you know? But in reality, so think about the garden. Adam and Eve realize they're naked. What do they do? Flee, hide, cover those things up, right? And so Paul's saying, you think, you know, gross. Let's cover these people up. In reality, what are you doing? You're making sure they're protected, covered, cared for, right? You're actually giving more attention to those parts, not less. These things you think are weak or gross, you're actually giving greater honor to. What is the first purpose of clothing? Not style. The first purpose is to not be naked, right? I don't care, if I'm naked, I'll grab anything and cover that nakedness, I don't care if it looks good. I don't care if it looks good even after, but that's another, that's why I married, you know, someone from Europe who can style me, like the Europeans, you know. (laughs) I hear they have great style, Uh, right? These parts that you think are gross, let's hide those things away, you actually require more care, more modesty. Okay, again, you're not thinking with God's perspective. In reality, we treat those with greater honor. The fundamental problem is not seeing as God sees. And at the root of all this, misunderstand, it, it is not just simply a misunderstanding. The root driving this in the Corinthians is pride. It's arrogance. We come back to this almost every single week. Your problems are not primarily external to you. They're primarily internal. And what is driving this is sin, is selfishness, is self-exaltation. That's what's fueling the Corinthian division. It's not that they've laid out all the gifts and they've evaluated them and they've just come to the wrong conclusions. It's that they've evaluated themselves and said, you know what? The church really does depend on me. And everyone else is kind of just in my way, so let's just get them out of my way as fast as possible. That's what's happening here. Pride, self-exaltation is at the root. And if we were to apply this to us, again, I said this two weeks ago, I don't think this is happening here. I mean, I see some of y'all in huddles. I don't think that's what y'all are talking about. Hey, if you notice, we're the most gifted. Should we get these other guys out of here? I don't think that's what you're talking about, but let's do some uh, triage. Let's do some diagnosis to see if there might even be a hint of pride. Some of these uh, questions convicted me. Let's, 
Let's ask, do you have a gift that you're using, that you are using, but it doesn't give you life, you're not satisfied because not enough people are seeing it? Are you leading a Bible study that three or four people are coming to and all you can think about is, man, I really wish more people would show up to this. They would see how awesome it is. And I really wish this would be an official parkway thing so that we could really see, you know, what is that? What is that? A desire to be seen. Are you easily frustrated when other gifts from other people are being seen because you're thinking, you know what, that's great, but I can, I could do that better. I've got better ideas than that person. What's behind that? This desire to be known. This desire for someone else not to be known because you could do it better. Do you think you have a gift now that you think, yeah, I'm gifted in this way, but I can't really use this until I have a stage? That's what I thought uh, as an intern five years ago. I thought, I'm an awesome teacher. Everybody would know it if I had a stage. Uh, But five years from now, I'll get hired from Parkway. Then everyone, you know, as I just talk about my spraining my ankle, playing soccer with my one-year-old, and stubbing my toe, right? What's what's the heart of that intern pride? I've got these gifts. I'm not going to use them now. I'm going to wait until I can get a lot of glory from them to use them. Pride. Pride's at the root of that. Last one. Do you have an idea that would really benefit the church and then someone else has a similar idea? That idea gets picked up and followed and it's an actual blessing to the church and your heart is primarily bitter. That's my idea. I thought of that first. They would ask me if someone would pay attention to me, then finally we would see it's, I had that idea first. Is your heart primarily bitter or are you happy that Christ's church is actually being built up through a passion that you also have? We always ask ourselves that as pastors. If another church who we love is growing and God is blessing them, do we see that primarily as competition and rivalry or are we praising God that his kingdom is advancing in other places? What's behind that if we think that's rivalry? Well, if people would just see us, they'd see we're smart too. Pride. Pride, is it self-exaltation or are you focused on exalting Christ? Let me just tell you, you will die and your great-grandkids will forget your name. They might say, oh yeah, Mima or whatever, but they won't know your actual name. I don't know my great-grandmother's actual name. We call her grandmother. I'm just kidding. I know her name. I don't know my great-grandmother's actual name, right? You will die. You'll be forgotten. There's one name that will last for all of eternity, and that's Christ. Live for that one. Is there pride at the root? Is it self-exaltation that you desire? The Corinthians, again, have forgotten the reason they were given the gifts in the first place. Why does God give you gifts? It's not to make your name great. It's to make Christ's name great. And because of that, instead of looking to his power, they're looking to their own power. God has intentionally wired you as human beings and then the church where we're constantly aware of our own needs to make us realize we're not God. We need each other and we need to rely on God. Again, Paul, after seeing this incredible revelation, says this in 2 Corinthians uh, 12. So to keep me from boasting, uh, or sorry, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given to me, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I prayed uh, prayed with the Lord about this that it should leave me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly 
in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Keep that in, in view. When you focus on yourself and your, your own self-exaltation, you've completely forgotten the reason you were given the gifts in the first place, to make his name great, not your own. <sighs> Lastly, in this section, the irony of what the Corinthians are doing, the irony of the Corinthians exalting themselves, and this shows us a bit of God's character, is that God does not need us in the first place. The irony of the Corinthians exalting their own gifts is that God, who has taken such intimate care to arrange the body as he has, doesn't need us in the first place. I have two kids, a two-year-old and an almost one-year-old, and anytime I can, I get them to help me with stuff uh, so Joe, my little baby girl, who's almost one, uh, when we get her out of the car seat and going into the house, I let, I have her close the garage door, the little button. So there's the button and her finger goes, miss, 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 hit, but not hard enough. So waiting, waiting, miss again. Then we finally get it, right? It's a four minute exercise. Harvey, my boy, uh, as I'm folding, he likes to help me fold. And so he'll get his clothes and he'll run. And as he's running, they're all falling and unfolding, undoing my work. But me, as the father, I love that. I'm the one that gets them to do that. I will get Harvey from playing and say, come help me fold clothes because I don't need them, but it's my joy for them to engage with me in helping. And this, again, I think reveals a little bit of God's character here. He does not need us at all, but by some unfathomable grace, he has chosen to bring us into his family and gift us and allow us to participate in this work of building up the church, of exalting the name of his son. A.W. Tozer says this on this subject, to admit the existence of a need in God is to admit incompleteness in the divine being. If God needs something, he's not God. Need is a creature word and cannot be spoken of the creator. God has a voluntary relation to everyone he has made but he has no necessary relation to anything outside of himself. His interest in his creatures arises from his sovereign good pleasure, not from any need those creatures can supply, nor from any uh, completeness they can bring to him who is complete in himself. Again, remember who you are and remember who your God is. Don't let pride blind you to God's good design over his church, how the members are meant to interact together. So there's, there's the second correction. One body, many members, all are necessary, all are dependent. And then here lastly, in the last couple of verses, the last thing he's gonna say, the joy of the members. The last piece is the joy of the members. Verse 24, but God has so composed the body. Again, there's the divine design. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. That, these may be, that there may be no division in the body and that the members may have the same care for one another. So again, divine design, God has so composed the body. Why? It's the, the same reason we've seen the past couple weeks. No division, unity, and care, love for one another. That's the heart. That's the heart of this, that we might love one another, care for one another, and have unity, that there be no division in the body and the same care for one another. Now, verse 26, what does that look like? What does it look like to have unity, no division, and the same care for one another? Verse 26, if one member suffers, 
all suffer together. Bend your toenail, the whole body feels it. One member suffers, all suffer together. You have such a care and love for each other, whether you're close personally as friends or not, that their loss is your loss. That it compels you to actually pray for them, not just say, I'm gonna pray for you, that the weird evangelical sign off, which means I'm not gonna pray for you, but I want you to think that I am, and I, if I get around to it, I will. Actually pray for them, actually care for them, actually want to go meet their needs. And in the second half of verse 26, if one member is honored, all rejoice together. To have such a love and a care for one another that when one is honored, rather than comparison, jealousy, bitterness, all rejoice, all share in the joy of that one member. Why? Because it's not about your glory, it's about Christ's glory. And here we see that's the ultimate goal of unity, our joy is the ultimate goal. Paul is not giving a moralistic teaching about how the body should be more uh, efficient. You know, be nice to each other, people are gonna annoy you, but grin and bear it, and you know, care for each other by not telling them how annoying they are, and smile and fake it, right? Superficial friendships, all these things like that. Well, it'd be more efficient that way. That is not what Paul is saying. That's how a lot of us view this. Have to care for each other. I don't like that person. What do I do? Uh, there's a, my favorite, uh, well, one of my favorite Disney movies is The Emperor's New Groove. Anybody seen that? Uh, and Krunk, the best character, there's a scene where he's got the Emperor uh, Llama in a bag. If you haven't seen the movie, you're like, what is this movie about? He's got the Emperor in a bag, throws him in a stream that's going to kill him, and it's going to drop off in a waterfall. And he's standing there thinking, should I do this? And his shoulder angel pops up, and his shoulder demon pops up. And the shoulder angel says, you're not going to let him die, are you? And he goes, oh, I didn't know you were there. And the demon goes, you're not going to listen to that guy. He wants to take you down the path of righteousness. I want to take you down the path that rocks, right? So many of us, that's how we view Christianity. Righteous, it's good, but boring, but stale, right? It's horrible, but at least you get heaven at the end of the way. That's how so many of us view the Christian life. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from what Paul is pointing to here. God's design, God's rules, if you will, always is for our ultimate joy. C.S. Lewis, we looked at this a couple weeks ago as we highlighted uh, him in our theological equipping classes, says this. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to enjoy God, or glorify God and enjoy him forever, but we shall then know that these are the same thing. To fully enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Two sides of the same coin. Those aren't opposed. It's not, okay, I'll worship you and hate my life now, but I get a mansion in heaven. To glorify is to enjoy the God of all joy, the God of all goodness, the God of all love. And in the same way, to glorify and enjoy are the same here. God's design, God's rules, if you want to incorrectly put it that way, and the joy of the members go hand in hand. God's design for the members and the joy of the members go hand in hand. Can you imagine a reality where verse 26 was actually a mark of this church? One suffers, we all suffer. One is honored, all rejoice. How countercultural would that be? I think if we got a taste of that, we would understand Jesus' words. By this, all will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. In a cancel culture and an outrage culture, to suffer with others who suffer and to rejoice with others who are honored, what could be more countercultural 
than that. We started, uh, as we close, we started by looking at how, again, the only reason we can even have this conversation about how the members are to relate to one another is because Jesus Christ brought us into the body in the first place. We are members of his body because he gave his body to be broken. We're not even having this conversation without the sacrifice of Jesus. And not only does he bring us in, but he's also the only one who frees us to actually live like this. We don't have to seek the approval of others, man's empty praise. Why? Because in Jesus Christ, we've been adopted into the very family of God and the father who sees gives us his approval. When he looks at you, he sees his son, he sees no spot. And you have ultimate approval from the only one who's worth giving approval. We don't have to seek our own exaltation because he's given us an eternal exaltation and life in him. He's the only one that can kill our pride. He's the only one that can lift up the downcast and he's certainly the only one who can give us infinite joy. Last week, Tim said, don't focus on the gift and miss the gift giver. This week, Paul is simply saying, don't miss the divine designer. Look to him as why you're in the body in the first place and then look to him as how we relate to one another. Don't look to yourselves. That's what got us in this mess in the first place, your own strength. Look to him and then finally, we'll be free to suffer with those who suffer and rejoice with those who rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Uh, we ask, as uh, sinful humans do, for you to heal us. We know that this is uh, easy on paper. Yes, we all just love one another and care for one another and be kind to one another. But it's a supernatural thing that you must do. So we pray that your spirit would do this in our hearts, that we would... Uh, begin as the gospel informs more and more of how we are meant to live together, how we are meant to edify one another, how we're meant to use our gifts, that we would see that in light of the gospel, that we would see that you are the good divine designer. These aren't just bland rules, rather this is for our ultimate joy. And I pray that that just wouldn't be something that we have to look forward to, but something that we taste that we would actually, from experience, we've, we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good and therefore we, we've tasted and seen what it's like to, for the members of the body to care for one another, to work together, to not look down on each other, to not pridefully go after sinful self-exaltation. We know what it's actually like to suffer with those who suffer and to work together to exalt the name of Christ. I pray that that wouldn't just be a desire, it would be a reality in our church, and it will be a testimony not to our own awesomeness, but like Paul, it will be a testimony showing your infinite power, that the treasure of the gospel would shine forth even brighter because it is in a broken jar of clay. Make that a reality in our hearts, Father, especially now as we turn to communion. We love you. We pray in your son's holy name. Amen.